numbers, but it's one of the large books of prophecy in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 9. While you're turning there, um, uh, we need to keep our college students in their prayers. They're coming up to uh, finals here real soon, and uh, we need to keep them in prayers. I was reading about a professor was given a, uh, the final to his class. It was a huge test. And uh, very, very important, their grades depended on uh, passing this test. He gave out the test to all the students. He went back, sat at his desk, waited, and it was like two hours to take the test. And finally, it was all over. The students started handing their tests back in. And he noticed that one of the students on the test had attached a $100 bill to the test. And there was a little note that said, $1 per point. You know what he's trying to do. You know, he put it. Well, the next day, uh, the professor handed the test back, and the student that put the $100 bill on his test that said $1 per point uh, got his test back, and on there was uh, $64 in change, and uh, it said $64 change. And um, he uh, only got a 46 on the test, and uh, I thought that was a funnier joke than that. But um, it's, it lost something in the translation there. So we'll try harder next week. Like the one preacher said, you don't pay much, you don't get much. So. All right, with that in mind, let's read our Bibles. Ezekiel chapter number 9. I just want us to read together verse number 9, if you would. Read it with me. Verse number 9. My boys always say to me, Dad, just preach. Don't tell the jokes. All right. Verse 9. Would you read it with me? Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. I'll preach a simple subject this morning on great sin, great grace. Great sin, great grace. I just want to say a word. If you have a cell phone, this would be a good time to turn that cell phone off. Uh, Like uh, somebody said, unplug the cell phone and plug up the babies. (laughs) It's a good time to do that. Let's pray together and ask God to bless. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And, uh, Lord, it's been a great week, this past week, how you've blessed. And such great services and and, uh, the Word of God speaking to our hearts. And great day yesterday. And now, Lord, we look ahead and uh, we need you to to help us. We need a a new uh, filling of your Spirit. We need a new challenge from your Word as we go ahead in the coming weeks and months. Lord, I pray that you would use these truths this morning and apply it to each of our hearts. Maybe there's somebody with us that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ genuinely as Savior. I pray that that would be settled today. God, I pray as pastor, Lord, you know my heart. I pray as pastor there would not be one member of Mountain Lake Independent Baptist Church that we would end up finding out they're lost and not genuinely part of the family of God. I pray that that would not be true of our church. And Lord, we pray that those of us that know you as Savior, that uh, we would stay close to you, keep short accounts, 
And Lord, we ask you to help us. Father, I present my body to you anew this morning. I yield my will as, as much as I'm able. I yield my will to your will, Lord. And I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would be you speaking through me. Open our hearts and minds, dear Lord, to your will for us, your word for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There is a world of difference between having the facts of the gospel in my head and having the truth of the gospel in my heart. Between simply knowing the verses and knowing the doctrines mentally and knowing the person of Christ in my life. I believe it was the second or third week of August of 1985. I traveled on neighborhood Bible time for the summer. I was in Bible college. I was my, just finished my junior year of Bible college. And uh, I traveled the summer. I got back to college early and had made arrangements with the school. I was going to work for a couple, three weeks before classes began, work for the school, try and make some money to pay my bills. And I was cutting grass, and I believe it was the second or third week of August 1985, Kathy Michelle Shiflett entered my life. And my life was altered drastically. My life was changed when Kathy came into my life. We met each other, we began dating, fell in love, became engaged, eventually married uh, all these 20 years. Kathy coming into my life changed my life. It really did. It was different after she came in my life. On May 7, 1979, the Lord Jesus Christ came into my life. And my life was altered. My life was changed. Things were different. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's a world of difference between simply having facts in your head, simply having knowledge of something and having that thing. You know what I'm saying? I hope all the young people have your not texting or anything like that. Please be sure and put all that stuff up. I don't believe there's anything more important going on in the world than the preaching of the Word of God right now. But there's a world of difference. It would have been possible for me to know about Kathy. It would have been possible for me to know facts about her. But when I, when I actually knew her and she came in my life, that's what made the difference. And the difference between having facts in our head and knowing the right answers and being able to repeat the doctrines about Christ... That's one thing. It's something completely different to have Christ in my life. To, to, have, a, to, to have him the, the truth of Christ in my heart. In fact, the difference between the two is not just a world of difference. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between spending eternity in the presence of God or eternity in the lake of fire. And so there's a real danger we face, particularly in a quote-unquote Christian nation such as ours, where in many ways, this country not as much as it once was perhaps, but in many ways our country is saturated 
with the truths of God's Word. And it's very simple to let it, to, to have the facts in our heads, but they never get down our hearts. I say it so often, but it's true. I guarantee you, we could have went to any one of the bars here in Garrett County surrounding areas last evening. We could have went to any of them, any one of them. In fact, maybe some of you did. But um, we could have went to any one of the bars in our area last night. And I guarantee you, we could have found folks who could have quoted to us the Romans' road plan of salvation. Right? Could have told us doctrinal truths. It's in their head, but it's not in their heart and life. I've told the story many times. Years ago, a fellow came. He attended for about a month or two. In fact, Brother Williams, it was your parents who got him coming here for a little while. They invited him, befriended him downtown, and he attended here. It was probably a month, maybe two months. Came Sunday mornings. I think he might have come a Sunday night or so. We had talked to him and tried witnessing to him, and I don't remember what all he said, but I do remember one experience. We had a Sunday school lesson. They were in Sunday school, and I don't remember what I taught on. But after Sunday school was over, he was very distressed. And he came to me, and we stood back in the lobby on the right side, just outside the door. I remember very, very clearly, and I could tell you his name, where he lives. And he came up to me, he said, Pastor Leatherman, he's a very dignified man. He said, Pastor Leatherman, I have what you're talking about in my head, but I do not have it in my heart. And that's Sam. I said his name. I said, I said, let's go back to my office. Let's get it in your heart right now. I said, let's settle it right now. Take care of it. He goes, oh, no, I'm not ready to do that. Never came back to church. I visited him. Never got anywhere. In fact, I just saw him a few days ago or a couple weeks ago. I have it in my head, but I don't have it in my heart. And as I said, it's a very real danger we face in our churches where we have the facts, we have the verses, we have the truths in our heads, and we know them, and we can put on the show, and we know how we're supposed to act, and we know how we're supposed to sit and wait to sing, and we know the songs, and we know the verses, and we know the responses, and we have it all in our head, but it never enters our heart, it never becomes real, there's no relationship with Christ there, and as a result, our lives are never changed. I think in a lot of cases, the rapture could take place and some people's lives would never be changed. Holy Spirit be removed and never be changed. That's the case. That is what Ezekiel was dealing with in chapter 9 of Ezekiel and the surrounding verses. He's dealing with the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom, particularly the city of Jerusalem. And God's people, as Ezekiel's dealing with them, he's talking about the captivity and other things, but in this particular portion, he is dealing with Jerusalem and his concern for the city and the people of Jerusalem was that they knew all about Jehovah. And they knew His laws, and they knew His commandments, and they knew what God had expected of them, and they could go through the rituals, and they could do their sacrifices, and they could go through their ceremonies, but it wasn't real to them. It was in their head. They had the facts of Jehovah in their head, but they did not have them in their heart. They knew the truth, 
but they did not experience the truth in their lives. And you know what that led to? That led to extreme, extreme idolatry. It led to extreme iniquity and sin and rebellion. You see, simple facts without sincere faith will not change a person's life. Just having the facts. We had... Uh, a number of years ago, when, I, when we were in Indianapolis, I was serving on staff of the church there with, as youth pastor. And the pastor brought in, I made reference to this fellow just recently, but a pastor brought in evangelist. I think he's a good man. I think he was sincere. I disagree with some of his tactics. And for the whole week, he preached on uh, witchcraft and Satanism and uh, rock and roll music and all that type of thing. And as I made reference to a few weeks ago, I disagreed with the way he went about some things, but he made a statement that caught my attention and has stuck with me all these years. He had these statistics and these studies, and he asked the congregation, he says, where do you think, what part of the United States of America do you believe has the highest instances of satanic worship? What part of the country? And most people in the congregation suggested two parts of the country, the United States of America. First of all, they suggested the Northeast. Massachusetts up there, it's cold hard. You think of the witch trials, the Salem witch trials and years going by. There's not a lot of Christianity up in that area. And a lot of people suggested the Northeast would have the highest rate of Satanism in the whole country. A number of other people suggested the Northwest. There's not a lot of Christian influence there, Washington, Oregon, and out in that area. And he suggested that. He says, that's not the case. He says, survey after survey after survey, study, police reports, all of it tell us that the highest rate of Satanism, practicing Satanists, is in the Bible Belt of the United States of America. Through the southeast part of our country, what we call the Bible Belt. Now the question is, why is that? Why would the place where the Bible is the most saturated, the area is most saturated with the truths of Scripture, why would that have the highest rate of Satanism in the whole United States? And I suggest this to you, and it's the same thing that's true in Ezekiel chapter 9. They had the facts of Scripture in their head, but they never got them down into their heart. And an unregenerated heart is a sinfully wicked heart. And when the truths of God's Word never get to the heart, that heart becomes, that, that outward ritualism produces unbelievable ungodliness and perversity. There's a certain denomination, well-known, very Huge denomination, had millions and millions of members. I don't have to say the name of it, it'll become obvious, so I make the next statements. That has an, an obscene rate of child abuse among their priests within that religion. Of course, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Now listen, I have nothing in the world against a Roman Catholic person. Nothing against person. They are good people. Some of the most sweetest, hardest working people I knew were, were Roman Catholics. But I tell you, we have serious problems with Roman Catholicism. 
because it is an outward ritual. It simply has words and it has an element of truth, but it is all external. You do these things, you go through these ceremonies, you do these rituals, you repeat these prearranged prayers. It's external, external. It's all what I call cerebral. But it's not real. There's no relationship with a living God. There's no relationship there with a risen Savior. It's all just in the head and outwardly. And that will inevitably produce ungodliness. And that's what was the problem with Israel. We've been studying Hosea on Wednesday nights. And it is almost, it is, it is difficult to preach the book of Hosea because of the perversity of God's people. Not the pagans, not the heathen who did not have the truth of God's word, but God's people who had the truth, but only had it in their heads. Never had it in their heart and life. And look at verse number 9. The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah. Not Babylon. Not the Moabites. But the house of Israel and Judah. The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. And the land is full of blood. That would be violence. And the city full of perverseness. For they say, the Lord hath forsaken the earth, the Lord seeth not. It's not that they didn't think God existed. It's not that they didn't think God was what He claimed to be. They simply said, He doesn't mean anything to me. All it is is just some facts out there. He doesn't see what I do. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, 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 he's forsaken us. He's, he's just a name. Simple facts without sincere faith will not change a person's life. Judah's relationship with the Lord had deteriorated into empty rituals which led to sinful actions and lifestyles. And here's my concern for the fundamental independent Baptist movement, us included is that we simply get down into going through rituals. And we simply go through the motions. And we raise up our young people. And they know the right answers. And they can spit back the right doctrines. And they know all the right forms. But they never get it down into their heart and soul. It never becomes real. They never, become, they never establish a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in the Bible Belt, you have the highest rate of Satanism. He has some of the worst perversity in religion. You find it in there. And so God's dealing with them. The truth of God's word had no impact on the Israel in Jerusalem's, the individuals of Jerusalem had no impact on their life. The holiness of God was of no concern to the people of God. The compassion of God meant nothing. To the people of God. There's two things I want us to notice as implied in the title of the message. First of all, I want us to notice the greatness of their sin. Now this is God's people. These are people who know the facts, but don't know the Savior. Notice what he says here. The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. That's what caught my attention as I was reading through my devotions. The the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. That word iniquity there is an interesting word. It means literally to take something and twist it. It means to take uh, something and bend it out of shape. We get our word to pervert. 
from the word that, that we get the word iniquity. It comes from the same word. To take something that is true, to take something that is right, to take something that is correct and twist it, to bend it out of shape, to distort it. And God's people had been given God's word. They had been given God's standard of holiness. They had been told what was right and what was wrong. And they took those facts, they took those truths, and they twisted them to somehow justify their ungodliness, their hatefulness, their perversity. They had twisted the things of God and had taken that which was good and made it into that which was bad and took that which was bad and twisted it and suggested it was that which was good. I'm telling you, we live in a world of iniquity. Our society, the American society, and the society no doubt in, in uh, Europe and society throughout all the world has a tendency, and we live in a world where they take that which is good, they say it's bad, they take that which is bad and they say it is good, and if all we have is the facts of God's word in our head, we will end up doing the exact same thing. And there are things being done in the name of Christ in churches in the United States of America that 15, 20 years ago, everybody knew they were wrong. But here's the thing. The, word, the truth was just in their heads. It wasn't in their heart. There was no living relationship with Christ. So they're able to take that which is good and twist it around. And I think the reason we're seeing churches like our church in going into this contemporary movement and there's such profuse worldliness and such blatant worldliness. So I'm afraid we have a lot of churches filled with people who have facts in their head but not Christ in their heart. Now, I'm not trying to get saved people lost. If a person's genuinely saved, they're saved. Amen? But I am saying there's a real danger of have, simply knowing facts and not knowing the Savior. And that was the case here with the nation, with the city of Jerusalem, the people of the city of Jerusalem. Their iniquity to twist and to store it out of shape. The Bible says was exceeding great. And that word exceeding there, if you get your strongest concordance out and look it up, it says this, very, 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 very great, abundantly great, overflowingly great. Their iniquity was exceedingly great. And the word great there means in both in volume and intensity. In other words, they had a lot of sin in their life, and it was what we would call really, really bad sin. There was a lot of it, and it was really, really bad. Now, here's the thing about sin. Sin never holds its own. It always gets progressively worse. If we talk, How many folks here, you're saved, you know it. Say amen. All right. Those of us that are saved, know Christ as Savior. Do you know what I found out shortly after I got saved? I was not sinless. That comes as a shock to many of you, perhaps. Maybe not. I found out I wasn't sinless. But I learned something, that even as a Christian, if sin, if I tolerate sin in my life, it always becomes worse. And it leads to more, and it leads to more. And if I'm not careful, before I know it, what I tolerated over there, all of a sudden, I'm way over here. It's like, whoa, how did that happen? How did I get from there to here so quickly? 
It's because sin always becomes exceedingly great. It always gets worse and worse and worse. It'll increase. And if you tolerate one sin, it won't be long. You'll be tolerating two sins. Then you'll be tolerating four sins. Then you'll be tolerating. And next thing you know, you're saying, I never dreamed I'd be talking and thinking and acting and doing what I'm doing now. Their sin became exceedingly great. And that's the nature of sin. It is difficult to put into words how sinful God's people had become here. Now, outward religion and facts in the head do not deter sin. As I said, as I've been pointing out, some of the most ungodly things have taken place and been committed by people who know the Bible well. And we need to understand that. Just because we know verses, I had a person say to me one time, man, I know all these verses. Why am I being tempted in these areas? I said, because the problem isn't with our heads. The, Bible, the problem is with our what? Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Are you doing all right? Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. If you have your old Schofield Bible, it is page something. 1,054, if that helps you. Mark chapter 7. I want to read several verses here, beginning in verse number 1. How many people are familiar with the Pharisees? How many people are familiar with the Pharisees? I don't mean the ones around today. I mean the ones in the Bible. Notice verse 1. Then came together unto him the who? All right, here we go. And certain of the scribes, which came from where? All right, same city that Ezekiel's dealing with just a number of years later. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashing hands, they did what? Found fault. Can I just throw a little footnote in here? It is, if you read your Bible carefully, it is only the Pharisees that ever find fault in the Bible. You never find Paul or Jesus going around finding fault with people. It's always who? Pharisees. You need to be very careful about that. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, a question, is it good to wash your hands before you eat? Yes, yes please do. But is it sin? Not necessarily. I mean, it may not be the healthiest thing in the world, it may not be smart, but you can't say it's sin. Well, the Pharisees had put this external thing to such a degree that you could not be right with God unless you washed and did all these series of things. So that's what's going on here. Look at verse 4. And when, they come to the, and when they came to the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received a hold as washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tables. My mom worked for years. She's always worked four or five jobs. And uh, she uh, worked for a cleaning houses. Some of you ladies do that. She would clean a number of houses for uh, wealthy people. And... Um, she cleaned houses for a Jewish family. And they had in their kitchen, she would go through, and there were certain cabinets in her kitchen that she was not allowed to open the door, and she could not touch those dishes. My mom was a Gentile. And they were off limits. They would have become unclean. And it was simply an external ceremony, and they had certain th areas of the house she couldn't touch. She couldn't go in that room and do these things. Well, that's what's going on here. They had all these external laws, all these things, Verse 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, that's Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. 
As it is written, look at this, these people, this people honoreth me with their what? Lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The problem wasn't with their lips, it was with their hearts. It wasn't with their dirty hands, it was with their dirty heart. It wasn't with their thinking, it wasn't with their ceremonies, the problem was with their heart. In fact, if you come over to verse number 18, look what Jesus says. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing cometh from without and entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out unto the draught, purging all meats. And he saith, look at this, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. The problem is with our hearts. That's why you stand in the back and folks will go out, shake hands and say, good, good message, Pastor, good message, Pastor. I say, thank you. And I appreciate when folks say that. I think all my messages are good messages. I agree with you. I say, no, I don't really. But sometimes people say this, boy, preacher, you stepped on my toes today. Anybody ever hear somebody say that? Man, you stepped on my toes today. I have two problems with that statement. Number one, I don't want it to be me stepping on your toes. I want it to be the Lord stepping on your toes. And number two, if I'm hitting your toes, it's too low. We're aiming for your heart. Because it's our heart that is what will change our lives. If you get a squished toe, you might limp. But brother, the Holy Spirit squishes your heart, it'll change your life. The heart is the problem. In Israel, and Jerusalem, Ezekiel's preaching to him, man, you are just, your iniquity is exceedingly great. You have all the outward appearances. You have all the outward righteousness. But man, your heart is full of bitterness and hatred and adultery and perversity. You're so, your sin is so great. But yet they had all the outward appearances. And brother, you can sit in a pew, and you can sit in a choir, and you can sit in a preacher's seat and have an ungodly heart. And outwardly everything looked great. Huh? The great sin. This is God's people. These aren't the Babylonians. These aren't the Moabites. A few thoughts along this. One, God's patience does have a limit. Come back to Ezekiel there real quickly with me, would you? God's patience does have a limit. God gets to chapter 9 in Ezekiel and he says, pretty much God is saying this, all right, I've had it. Did you ever say that with your kids? I've told you a thousand times. I'm not going to tell you again. God's, hey, I'm glad our God is a patient God. Amen? Brother Brian Schofield taught the adult Sunday school in here this morning. Did a great job. Excellent. And he was talking about Adam and Eve and how that God, uh, uh, God had given some instructions, given a law to Adam and Eve that they should not eat the forbidden fruit. Eve ate it, Adam ate it, Adam was held accountable. But the interesting thing in that story is that as soon as Adam bit into that forbidden fruit, God didn't show up and wham! God didn't do that. What did God do? In fact, if you read it carefully, you kind of get the idea, it implies that a whole day went by. 
and there was no repercussions from God. And in the cool of the day, which we believe to be that evening, God shows up. And he's just walking through the garden. And Adam's hiding. Now, why didn't God come down immediately to Adam and confront him about it? Because our God is a patient God. And I believe, this is Leathermanism here, but I have the idea from reading the rest of Scripture and what we've learned about God from Scripture, I believe God was given Adam an opportunity to make things right, to come and approach God. So God waited till the end of the day, the cool of the day, and then God went out and approached Adam. Our God's a patient God. Aren't you glad? If God wasn't a patient God, none of us would be here. You know where we'd be? We'd be burning hell right now. Now, God is a patient God, but God's patience has a limit. In Genesis chapter 6, and I believe it's verse number 3, God says this, My spirit will not always strive with man. And in Genesis chapter 6, you have, a, uh, you have this, the situation. I'll make sure I have my scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with man. You have a situation where the world's iniquity had become so great that every thought of man was on evil continually. Every imagination of man. Violence filled the land. And God said to mankind, That is enough! God sent a flood. And God destroyed all of mankind, but for Adam and his... Or Adam... Um, That's the Leatherman version of it. Um, Except for Noah and his family. God said, that's it. God is a patient God, but there comes a point where he says that's enough. Let me just throw this out. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, not genuinely trusted Christ as Savior, thank God for his patience, number one. But you need to understand, God's patience has a limit. And when your heart stops beating and your body dies, God's patience is done. And judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, what? The judgment. God's patience is done. God's patience is done. And Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1, God says, that's enough. And he starts, and he sends uh, some angels, I believe, and they start going through and they start slaying men, women, and children. It's done. I've given you opportunity. I've given you year after year after year opportunity to be saved. I've given you opportunity to make things right. You've got all the truth in your head. You've got all the knowledge in your head. But it's not in your heart. You've never taken it to heart. You don't have a relationship with with me. It means nothing to you. You're living an ungodly life. That's it. The greatness of their sin brought the judgment of God upon him. By the way, man cannot blame God for his sin. That's what Calvinism does. You understand what Calvinism is? The teaching of Calvinism, which by the way is running rampant in Baptist churches in America today. Calvinism says that everything is ultimately, when you boil it down to its most basic teaching, everything is ultimately what it is because God has determined it to be so. And that logically leads to the conclusion that Adam sinned because God determined Adam would sin. It ultimately makes God responsible for sin. Listen, our God is a holy God. He does not sin. He does not cause man to sin. He cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. God has given man a free will. 
And man's free will in no way diminishes the sovereignty of God. In my mind, man's free will exalts the sovereignty of God even greater where God is able to deal with a man that has free will. Calvinism says God can't deal with a man that has free will. So God has to program everything out for him because he couldn't be God if man had a free will. I'm telling you, God is God. And man has a free will. And no man can stand before God and say, God, you predetermined that I would act this way. We're held responsible. And so Ezekiel, as he confronts the city of Jerusalem, the people of God who had gotten to where the truth was just in their head and there was no reality in their heart, he says, listen, God has been patient with you, but His patience is up. You cannot blame God for your sin. You must accept responsibility for the fact that the truths are only in your head and not in your heart. And by the way, let me throw this out. All sin is great. Well, Brother Lenderman, I'm not perfect, but I ain't that bad. I mean, I never... It's incredible. In the jail in Indianapolis, a murderer killed a couple people. He said, well, I didn't kill as many as a guy down the hall from me. Oh, well, in that case. All sin. Now, not all sin is equal in its consequences, right? We say this often. Some sins have greater consequences than others. Um, you know, I would far rather have somebody hate me in their heart than murder me. Anybody, can I get a witness? But Jesus said that if a person hates someone in their heart, they're just as condemned as the person that committed the murder. Now, they have different consequences. Someone, someone murdering me has a far greater impact on my life than if they hate me. Right? But they're all equally condemned. You see, God has set up His law. God has set up His standard. The law of God, Brother Brian, is simply an expression of the holiness of God. That's what it is. The law expresses God's holiness. The law is God's standard that He demands from anybody that's going to be in fellowship with Him, be in His presence. They must live up to the standard because that is what the holiness of God demands. And so the law is an expression of God's holiness. And if I violate the law, whether it's in thinking evil of someone or whether I'm actually stabbing them in the back with a kitchen knife, the regardless of that, I have broken that law and I am condemned. It's like a chain. Suppose you're, you have a chain, you're hooked to a harness and you have a chain. And that chain is what... That chain is what the standard that keeps me from dropping into the bottomless pit. That chain is the holiness of God. And some links are very big. The greatest commandment is that thou love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. That's a huge link. And that you love your neighbor as yourself, that's a huge link. But there's also some smaller links in this chain that's holding me over this bottomless pit. This standard that's necessary for me to have fellowship with God. Some of those smaller links have to do with maybe how I spend my money, my tithe, maybe how I dress or uh, friends I have. These are all commands, part of the commands of God that are expression of God's holiness. Some are big links, some are smaller links. But how many links does it take to be broken before I fall into that pit? Just one. 
doesn't matter if it's a big one or a little one. If one link is broken, the standard does not, is, is not lived up to, and I'm condemned. And so all sin is great in its condemnation from God. So maybe you're here this morning, you say, Brother Leatherman, I pay my bills. I, I'm, I try to be honest. I try to be a good neighbor. I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar. I'm a decent, good citizen of the United States of America. I'm not. My sin is not exceedingly great. It doesn't have to be exceedingly great in the eyes of God, to be ex- in the eyes of man, to be exceeding great in the eyes of God. And in its consequences before God. So our sin is great, exceeding great, just as Israel's was. One link in a chain is all it takes to be broken, for the chain to be broken, for God's standard to be broken. When this truth gets in our hearts, hey, listen, when the truth of how exceedingly sinful we really are, when that gets in our hearts, you know what it does? Are you with me? You know what it does? It brings us to the end of ourselves. When we realize how sinful we are, we make this statement in one way or another. There's nothing I can do. I'm so sinful. I have broken God's law. God says my sin is... I have no hope. There's nothing I can do. Condemned. Have you ever been at that posi- in that place? I was. The spring, the late winter of 1978, spring of 1979. Brother, I was there. I'd go to bed at night as an 18-year-old boy. I'd lay in bed, and I'm being honest with you now. There was nobody in the world more ungodly than Dennis Leatherman. I'd lay in bed there, and I'd, I'd just, God, help me. God, help me. And it came to a head in early May of 1979. I knelt by my bed and I said, there is, I have no hope. There's nothing I can do. Jesus, I need you to do it for me. And that leads me to not just great sin, but that leads me to great grace. And that's what Israel needed. And that's what God has available. Turn with me, if you would, real quickly, and I end with this, to 1 John, New Testament book, 1 John chapter 1. Turn over there real quickly with me. Great sin. We're condemned, all of every one of us. We may have the facts in our head. We may know all these truths. But it leads me to 1 John chapter 1. Boy, take your pen out, would you? And underline with me verse number 7 particularly the last phrase of verse number 7. Look what it says. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Isn't that wonderful? The greatness of our sin, God said to the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, He said, your sin, your iniquity is exceeding great. And my patience has run out and judgment is certain. But I get over in the New Testament and I find out it doesn't matter how great my sin may be, God's grace is greater. And the blood of Jesus Christ can and will cleanse us from what? All sin. 
He said, Brother Leatherman, if you knew knew what my sin was, if you knew how badly I sinned, you know God couldn't forgive me. Brother, that is not in the Bible. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. When we realize the greatness of our sin, then we begin to appreciate the greatness of God's grace. One thing we can be certain of, though our sin is great, God loves us dearly, and His blood can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, God's blood, God being gracious, God's grace does not excuse our sin, does not ignore our sin, and does not even cover our sin. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses our sin. And there's a world of difference between covering something, ignoring something, trying to excuse something, than there is from cleansing it. And God's grace will cleanse our sin. What happens if you have a dirty shirt? You put it in the washing machine and you wash it. You clean it. Where did that dirt go? It's gone. Right? It's not there just covered up. You don't just get it out and shake it up and there's a big stain right in the front of the white shirt and say, somebody says, look at that stain. What stain? I don't see no stain. I don't see it. I'll just ignore it. I've tried that. Doesn't work. Get out. That's not that bad. Come on now, you guys look at me like you're pious. Your wife's on vacation. That's eh, not that bad. I'll just wear my tie over that spot there. Hey, God does not ignore sin. When a person gets saved, it's not God saying, well, you know, it's, we'll just, so what? It's not the way it is at all. He doesn't try and justify it. Well, you know, his wife's gone, that's staying there. You know, they got hard water. Washing machine's getting old. Eh, it'd be all right. It's not the way God deals with sin. Well, you know, he's just the way he is, and that's kind of his temperament. God doesn't do that. You know what God wants to do? I hope you're still with me on this. We realize how awful our sin is, and we come to God, and we say, God, I need your grace. I need your blood to deal with my sin. I I can't be this way. I'm under your judgment. God cleanses that sin away. Here's a problem with a lot of people, I think. We want God to forgive our sin, but we don't want him to cleanse it. Huh? We want to keep on sinning, enjoy the pleasures of sin. We want that, but we don't want to be judged for it. So God, forgive me of my sin. God says, yeah, I'll forgive your sin, but I also want to cleanse it. I want to get rid of it. So we want to be able to hold on to the sin, but not be condemned. So we, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Thank God he does forgive us. Amen? But God's not satisfied in just forgiving sin. He wants to cleanse it, get rid of it, wash it out of there so it's not a part of your life anymore. And hence, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are, are passed away. I want to say washed away. Great sin, but great grace. That tells me that the most hardened sinner, the most perverse person that you can think of, that you're praying to get saved, maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker, somebody that God has laid them on your heart, it doesn't matter how wicked, how perverse they are, God's blood can cleanse them from all unrighteousness. God can save them and change them. There's people in this auditorium could stand up and testify that before they were saved, alcoholics, perverse, d- dirty mouths, perverted adulterers, and God saved them and changed their lives and cleansed them from all unrighteousness. God can do that. And if we don't believe that, our soul winning is down the tubes. If we don't believe that God can save the worst sinner and open 
then we might as well forget going soul winning. But I'm telling you, it's true. We can go out and see people saved. So, great sin, great grace. The way to have peace in your heart is, first of all, accept the greatness of your sin. Say, yes, Lord, I'm not just not perfect. I am an exceedingly great sinner. And then accept by faith the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things. One, make sure you're saved. Amen? I'll be honest with you. I'm at the point now, Brother Creed, I'm not real concerned whether people join our church or not. I'd love for everybody to join a church. I think everybody in Garrett County ought to be a member of Mount Lake Independent Baptist Church. But that's not my concern. My concern is that they come to Christ and get saved. Trust Christ. Get saved. So number one, make sure you're saved. And number two, if you are saved, my friend, keep short accounts. Jerusalem... That was God's people. They, their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers had seen God do some great things. But this is several generations later, and these people grew up. And now they had all these facts in their heads, and they had heard all the stories, and they knew all. They had, the, they had Exodus memorized and all the commandments memorized. They knew all the ceremonies. They could do them with their eyes closed. And it meant absolutely nothing to them. They just going through the motions, just fulfilling a duty. And God said, I know your hearts, and it is exceedingly sinful. And if we're not careful, if we allow our, our Christianity in Mount Lake Independent Baptist Church just become a ritual, we're going to have a generation follow us. That is going to be exceeding sinful. We need to keep short accounts. Listen, if you're saved, you're not sinless. Amen? Can I get a witness? Some of you have already seen that today, maybe. But when we sin, we need to run to Christ and say, God, that was wrong. It was sinful. I confess it. I forsake it. God says, we'll find mercy. And we can go on before that thing does all that damage. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to help us. Help us to be for real. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Lord, if there's any...